to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. I've told you a number of times that I'm uh, sort of a lousy handyman, but I like to think that I've improved over the years. Um, I, 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 you know, I, the home that I grew up in, we didn't do a lot of um, do-it-yourself projects. It was just sort of a little bit different in Malaysia. And so uh, when, I, when I came to the States and got married to my wonderful wife and uh, met my future father-in-law, even you know, as we were dating, Holly and I were dating, I discovered that um, he and I are different in a number of ways. And uh, he's, uh, he's the epitome of a handyman. I mean, he's uh, the kind of guy that, uh, you know, farms the farm that his dad farmed and, you know, fixes his stuff, builds stuff, um, helped build a house, uh, you know, which that blows my mind, you know. I didn't know that people could do that, you know. Uh, I thought robots did that or something, you know. And uh, anyway, so I, I, I jest. Um, but we're different in a lot of ways. And so over the years, I mean, Holly and I are coming up this summer on 10 years of being married. And so I've tried to improve and get better and, and uh, through trial and error. I mean, I think if you saw, uh, was it our, our first house where I was trying to hang this mirror and uh, it required drywall anchors, except that I ended up having to move it a half an inch and put another one. And then the two holes made one really gigantic hole. And, and then all of a sudden the mirror was relocated to be over the hole, you know. And uh, we've had a lot of experiments like that. Well, recently, I don't know how recent it was, maybe it was a couple years ago, a year and a half ago, um, we had this um, toilet paper holder in our downstairs bathroom that wouldn't stay on. Small job, I could do that. It's just, I mean, that's an easy fix, you know, it's one of those little metal plate things and you screw that in and then the, you know, the toilet paper holder thing clips on it. And uh, so I, I, I was trying repeatedly to fix it and uh, it kept jiggling and moving, and the toilet paper would keep falling down. It just wasn't quite working. Well, on this particular occasion, Holly's mom was visiting, and her dad was, was going to be coming a few days afterwards. She, her mom had come out earlier, and so uh, I think I'd come home from work or something, and Holly said, hey, babe, would you, we really need you to fix that toilet paper roll holder. Uh, you know, everyone's going to be coming in town soon. And I was like, oh, well, I, I tried to play it off like, well, I mean... I really, th- I don't know how to fix, I mean, I, I, don't, I think there's a major problem, there's a design flaw in this thing, you know, like, uh, I think the builders who put it in, I mean, I don't think they did, they did something wrong now, and it's going to be too hard, and, and uh, my precious mother-in-law, bless her heart, blurts out, oh, well, it's okay, Bill will be here in a few days, <laughs> and I, I shouldn't have been offended, but I confess, I was, and I sort of thought, well, I, I could, hey, I could fix that, I just... Really, I haven't tried. I was just sort of you know, taking a, surveying the situation, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and then we ended up having this conversation about it, and she's like, Glenn, I'm so sorry. I wasn't trying to, uh, you know, offend you. I was just trying to tell you, you know, Bill, he, he, he's got a long list of things to do at our house, and he's not doing that either. And I was just, you know, anyway, she's trying to backpedal out of a really innocent comment. And um, it occurred to me that sometimes the offer of help can be an insult if it insinuates a need that you don't want to admit, uh, that even the kindest gesture of someone doing something for you and offering this help, uh, uh, it can be insulting because it insinuates a need, but it's really insulting because it insinu- when it insinuates a need, you don't want to admit. 
Uh, you know, someone gives you, uh, I, I don't know, you know, someone, someone says, hey, instead of lunch, why don't we go grab a smoothie? Are you saying I'm fat? You know, and there's sort of this thing of like, <laughs> everything can kind of insinuate something if you don't want to admit that you need help with something. We, this is a little bit of what we see going on in this text that we're about to dive into, because here's Jesus announcing that he's here, uh, the, the physician to the sick, he says in his own words, as we'll see in the text tonight. And yet there are people that are sort of insulted by that because that insinuates that they need some help, uh, that they couldn't really do it, that they really couldn't manage, they couldn't be quite good enough, they couldn't sort of obey good enough. And this was, this was insulting, it wasn't well received. So far in the book of Luke, just to recap, because, uh, we, by the way, me and about 70 other people had a wonderful service last Sunday uh, while the rest of you were watching the Super Bowl, and I just, you know, I, I, I mean, I, it might have been the best Sunday night service we've ever had. I just, I don't know, but uh, it's no way to relive it, really, but uh, anyway, oh, boo, okay, it's fine. We TiVo'd the game, and we watched it later, and all, all that's fine, but look, look, here's what I said last week is... In, in Luke so far, Luke's recorded a few um, instances of Jesus' direct speech, and uh, we have the moment in Luke 2 where Jesus as a 12-year-old is saying, hey, look, don't you know I need to be about my father's business? And so you see an awareness of his identity, and then you see kind of later, we talked about this in Luke 4, where, where Jesus says, quotes from Isaiah, and he says, look, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. In other words, here's a Jesus who's aware of his purpose and aware of his calling. And very quickly after that scene, you see Jesus now confronting the enemy. And so it's, it's as if we're, we're, we're kind of following a progression here where Jesus, aware of who he is, aware of what his mission is, and now sort of putting everyone else on notice. And so he announces, he starts healing the sick and rebuking demons as if to say, look, your time is up. I'm here. I've arrived. You're not running the show anymore. And then it goes on, and the, the text we did last week was Jesus calling his disciples. So the implications of his life in ministry for the demons, and the implications of his life in ministry for now his disciples. Well, tonight we, we move on and we see his first confrontation with religious leaders. And there's a couple stories that we're going to read, and in both of these stories, there's some sort of showdown with religious leaders. And so we're, and Luke means to show us how Jesus now confronts the leading voices of Judaism, the Pharisees in Jerusalem, so here's, or in Palestine. And so here's the text that we'll pick up with. We're going to do this in two halves. Luke 5, 17 through 26 first. Now, on one of these, those days, while he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting nearby who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And just then, some men showed up carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. And they were trying to bring him in and place him before Jesus. But since they found no way to carry him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down on the stretcher. Sorry, through the roof tiles right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, possibly because some of the thinking of the day was, Look, if you suffered from a debilitating physical illness, it surely must be because of some sort of disobedience on your own. And so socially, there began to be kind of this, uh, to look at a person who was born blind, to look at a person who's paralyzed like this and say, oh, well, you're kind of less than, you must have done something wrong. And so there's this looking down, and Jesus' first words to this guy is, your sins are forgiven. He's announcing 
Look, there's forgiveness. I'm not viewing you as an outcast. And then the experts in the law and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their hostile thoughts, he said to them, I love this, there are a couple of instances where Jesus is responding to someone's thoughts. Uh, this is one of them. He said to them, why are you raising objections within yourself? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, stand up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he stood up before them, picking up the stretcher he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then then astonishment seized them all, and they glorified God. They were filled with awe, saying, we have seen incredible things today. A couple comments on this text before we move on to the next section, and then we'll sort of make some remarks that will maybe hopefully pull it all together. Uh, First here, the Pharisees are not upset because they don't believe in forgiveness. They do believe in forgiveness. Uh, In fact, I think the mistake that sometimes is made is to say, oh, well, Jesus was all about forgiveness, but the God of the Old Testament was all about vengeance. Well, that's unfair because the God of the Old Testament set up a whole system for people to receive forgiveness. Uh, in other words, our fallenness, our, the fact that we were going to break the law was a foregone conclusion in God's mind. He knew that. So there were provisions made for it. It wasn't like God said to Israel, here's a law and <gasps> you didn't obey it. He knew. That's why as he's giving them the law, he's giving them instructions for how to have sacrifice, make sacrifices and, and what should be done because he's saying to them, look, I know that you're going to fall short, but look, here's a way that you can receive forgiveness. So the issue wasn't that these experts in the law did not believe in forgiveness. In fact, it's precisely because they did believe in forgiveness that they were upset at Jesus. Because for them, forgiveness was supposed to happen through a very particular system. You were supposed to go through this whole thing, and you've got to use the temple, and you've got to have sacrifice. How can you just announce that you're forgiving sins. What about our system? Jesus is making a comment on their system that's now, whose time is now up. If the previous miracles were an announcement to the demons that their time was up, this section is sort of an announcement that this old system's time has come to an end. And you can imagine how good that must have been to hear by the people who are the powerful ones in that system. Imagine if you had worked your life to gain a particular status and then to discover that that company was going bankrupt, that that status didn't mean anything anymore. Uh, Think about the financial scandals and things like that that have happened over the last couple of years, banking-wise. Think about the people who've accrued all this money in retirement only to be told, oh yeah, it doesn't count for anything anymore because this company's gone under. Similar sort of feeling. These guys had invested their life in a system that gave them power And Jesus was essentially undermining the system and saying, yeah, I'm forgiving sins now. Imagine the shock, the horror, the anger. The phrase that Jesus uses, the Son of Man, is an interesting phrase. It it possibly has references to Daniel 7 where where the, 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 the prophecy goes that in Daniel 7 that one like the Son of Man will appear and he will execute judgment on the nations. And it was this picture of God's chosen one coming to vindicate Israel. So when Jesus says, but so that you know that I, the Son of Man, have authority to forgive sins, he's basically saying, 
so that you know that I am that one, that appointed chosen one, that Messiah figure, so that you know that I am He, and instead of executing judgment, I'm announcing forgiveness. Let me heal this man. Do you see this? So this is significant. I think many of the stories that are told to us in the Gospels are not accidental, okay? We move on in the text, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi Uh, sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he said to him, and he got up and followed him, leaving everything behind. And then Levi gave a great banquet in his house for Jesus, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. Now this, probably in Levi's mind, was not a big deal. They were the only people he knew. Tax collectors were despised because they were sort of viewed as complying, working with, collaborating with the enemy, as in Rome. So these are a bunch of guys that have, again, so if the paralyzed guy is an outsider, here's another group of outsiders, these tax collectors that have been shunned and said, oh, you're, you're kind of doing business with the devil here. We, you're less than, you're outsiders. So when Levi gets called, if Levi's going to throw a party, who are the only people Levi knows? Other tax collectors. Probably because they're the only people who would eat with him anyway. And Jesus answered them, those who are well, oh, sorry, but the Pharisees and experts in the law complained to his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Of course, this idea, this symbol of eating, this picture of eating is a, is a picture of fellowship, of acceptance, of almost a, a, a we can be um, together in this, of fellowship. And Jesus answered them, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples frequently fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours continue to eat and drink. Lots of problems with the eating and the drinking. And I don't mean this in a debauchery sort of way. And so Jesus said to them, you cannot make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But those days are coming, and when the bridegroom is taken from them, at that time they will fast. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. If he does, he will have torn the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Uh, Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. No one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is good enough. I think it's important to recognize uh, meals and the significance of meals in Scripture. uh, In both the Old Testament reading and the New Testament reading tonight, they both spoke of meals. The Isaiah 25 text spoke of a day where there would be this great banquet that Messiah would throw, a big party, a big feast, that, Messiah, that would be at Messiah's table. And Isaiah says that people from all nations will eat at this table. In Revelations, the text that we, wrote, uh, we, re- we heard read was about Jesus saying, look, let me come in, repent, and then let me come in, and I'll eat with you. And there's again this meal. Meals actually in Luke's gospel play a significant role. There's a couple of meals that happen. There's, there's two post-resurrection meals, the meal with the, with the companions after the, on the road to Emmaus, and the meal after that with his disciples. There's something about who's eating and drinking with Jesus. We're not meant to see it in sort of this partying, loose kind of way, but we're meant to see it as, who does Jesus keep company with? And maybe to some degree, the meals are Jesus's way of saying, look, 
Don't you know that the picture, the plan, is that all peoples, from all nations, I will bring together a people that will eat at my table in the end. So I'm going to go ahead and get it started now. Okay? Now, before we can go on, I think the question arises, who were the Pharisees? Um, Many of us have kind of heard the the shorthand uh, in church over and over again with Pharisees, bad guys, Jesus, good guy, you know? And uh, and that's, that's okay, but I think we need to do better than that. Who, who were the Pharisees? Where did they develop? How did they, how did they show up? We don't see them in the Old Testament. Who are these guys? Okay, here's the thing. We'll try to, we'll try to rush uh, or, or sort of do this quickly, hopefully. Uh, when, after Israel splits in two kingdoms, and after Solomon, there's a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. The kingdom in the north gets taken by Assyria in 722 BC, roughly, and they get scattered across, and they, they, they're being forced to intermarry, and it's hard to recover those tribes, but the two tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah are taken into Babylon. Now, they're, they're, they're allowed to live there as a people, but the problem is there's no temple. How do you worship now when there's no temple and no sacrificial system? And so what develops is this observance of Torah. The, the keeping of the law becomes the most important thing. Imagine if you were not allowed to worship the way we're used to. You can't sing. You can't listen to some dude on a stage with a script. You know, and we're saying, oh, well, how do we worship? How do we? That's what they were trying to reform is generations and generations of this is how we worship, and then being told, well, now you can't. We're in Babylon, and you find new ways. And so the, the rise of the law and the study of the law and Torah itself became this very important thing. And so they return back, they rebuild uh, a temple of sorts. It's Zerubbabel's. It's a kind of a, not a great temple, but it's a temple. And they're doing okay, and they're excited about it. And then the Syrians come. We have the whole Maccabean revolt and all this stuff. By the time we get to Jesus, there is a temple. It's Herod's temple. But there's also now a, a group of, several groups of people who've given their lives to being experts in the law. Now, if you had grown up where the only, peop- the only way to worship was to know and obey God's law, who would be the rock stars in that culture? The guys who really knew and obeyed the law, right? So it, let's not villainize these Pharisees yet. Let's understand where they've come from. These are people who, under, who valued, treasured God's law and were learning to obey instead. In fact, uh, I think in the Talmud records seven different kinds of Pharisees, and one kind of Pharisee was the bleeding Pharisee who was called... That, so that because he would walk around with his eyes closed so as not to accidentally lust after a woman, and then he would run into stuff and start bleeding, hence the name, the bleeding Pharisee, okay? So, but these are guys that are trying to do their best with obeying it. Now, why? What was their motivation? There was no Jew in the first century who was, who was saying, let's be good enough so we can be God's people. In fact, they already were God's people, Right? So why were, what was their motivation for this obedience thing? Do you remember a couple Sundays ago, I talked to you about how, yes, they believed in this, there's heaven and there's earth and this thing, but they were really more concerned with this age and the age to come. And they were really more concerned with when is God going to do what he promised? What will usher in the age to come? Which is a way of saying when is God going to keep his promises and restore Israel and kick our enemies' tails and make everything right and throw Rome off our backs? When is God going to do? And so the Pharisees were a group of people that believed. Look, God said. They were the first God said people. God said, 
If we obey, then these blessings would follow. And if we disobey, these curses would follow. And don't you see all these curses came on us because we disobeyed? And there was truth to that. And so now the Pharisees were part of a group of people that said, look, maybe if we can obey good enough, the age to come will start. Maybe if we can obey in such a perfect way, God will be true and God will usher in his new age and God will vindicate us and all this stuff. Their motivation for obedience was not acceptance as his people. They were already that. It wasn't so they could go to heaven. They weren't concerned about that. They were wanting to obey so that God's age to come would happen. Does that make sense? Now, what Jesus says to them is remarkable. Because this whole bit about the patch and the garment and the wine and the wineskins is he's basically saying to them, you can't. You can't do stuff good enough, in a good enough way to make this happen. You can't add this on like a patch. You can't usher in the kingdom with your obedience. You can't fix this. That's why Jesus says, you're sick. I came as a physician to the sick, not to those who are well. Which is a roundabout way of saying, do you think you're well or do you think you're sick? Because if you think you're well, then you don't need me. But the truth is you're sick. The truth is you've got an old garment that a patch is not going to fix. You've got a wineskin that's not ready for what I'm about to do. You think your obedience can usher in God's age and bring all these promises on you, and I'm telling you, you can't. Now that's surprising news. Because how many times have we thought that if we do this, we can sort of pull the lever from God? Well, God, if I could just, and then I'll just... And you look at your life sometimes, and maybe your life is this microcosm version of what Israel was going through, where you're experiencing trouble and hardship and and tough times in your job or with your family, and you're saying, well, gee, maybe we didn't push the right buttons. Maybe we forgot the code. Maybe our obedience was not enough, and maybe we need to pull this lever. Come on, God, you said. And Jesus is saying, look, it's over. The garment needs to be thrown away, not patched up. The wineskin needs to be tossed, not just put some new stuff in it. You're sick, in need of a doctor. The Pharisees' problem was not so much their legalism. There was that, but what I want you to see is two other things. It was more their exclusivism. It was them saying, we know who's included. And it's probably not these people, they're too disobedient. And it's probably not the tax collectors because they're too rough. Their problem was not their legalism as in their love for the law as much as it was their exclusivism. And, let me say this, their optimism about their own ability to obey. Was it wrong that the Pharisees loved the law? No. David says it. I love your law. Sometimes I think that legalism means, oh, legalism is loving the law. For the Pharisees, the issue was more of their optimism about their own ability to keep it. To think that, no, we can, if we just did everything right and took the right amount of steps on the Sabbath, then we can sort of twist God's arm and pull the lever and ping, we've won the jackpot. We've ushered in the age to come. And Jesus is saying, no, 
No, you can't. I think it's interesting how Luke tells us the story, the sequence of these stories, because the first story is Jesus saying that he's come to offer forgiveness, and then the second story tells us that we all need it. So the order is sort of this. Luke tells us what Jesus came to give and then shows us how we need it. Says, look, I'm here. I'm the Son of Man here not to execute vengeance, but to bring forgiveness. And oh, if in case, just in case you think you don't need it, that you can do this, let me tell you that you can't. Friends, I think it's important to realize that what we believe here at church, what we do here each week with communion and confession and all this stuff, is that it's not an add-on to our life. Jesus is not an add-on. He's not a patch we sort of put on and say, oh, I was doing pretty good, but then things were falling apart, and where's that Jesus patch? I can sort of hold it together now with Jesus. What Jesus is saying is throw it out. Throw out your old program, your old confidence in your ability, your old optimism about your obedience, your old exclusivism about who's in and who's not. Listen, I'm not here to patch anything. I'm here to give you a new robe. I'm here to give you a new garment. I think of the ways that we sometimes want to add Jesus to our lives like a patch. Like, it's like, you know, you ever had an old pair of jeans, and you're like, oh, it's fine. I just need to put something on that knee. I've had a few pairs of jeans where I just tried to patch it up, and it just kept ripping and ripping and ripping. And, you know, it's like, no, no, I just need a bigger patch, you know. It's like, I think you need new jeans. That's what Jesus is saying to us. You don't just need a, a little help. Hey, God, I mostly got this. I just need a little help. No, no, no. He wants us to come to the place where we say, Jesus, Jesus, I, I don't got this. I don't have this. This whole this program I've been living under of my own sort of self-help and I can do this in ten ways to a better you, and I, it's just it's not really working. I can't add Jesus to that. I can't Jesusify pop psychology. I can't Christianize self-help. I can't baptize Oprah into my language and make it work. What I need is a new garment. I need a new garment. I need new wineskins. I've got to say, my program has reached its end, and the end is not good. It's about to burst. I need you. I think we sometimes do this. Be careful. I'll have to be careful how I say this. I think we sometimes do this in our efforts for... Um, Cultural change, you know? We want Jesus to, to be the sort of endorsement of our cause when our cause leads to more wealth and protection and affluence and safety in America. But what about all the other Jesus words that undermine that? So is it convenient to cite Jesus when he fits your political cause? but convenient to ignore Jesus when it might make you open your eyes to the ones who are on the fringe of society. Because Jesus will not be an add-on. He will not be added to our garments and our programs and our agendas. He wants to give us a whole 
new regime. And I think there are so many times when I think of recent political figures who sort of tried to use the Christian thing because they knew we'd get excited about this cause or that cause or this thing or that thing. And it's just strange to me as a new citizen watching this because we're being played. That more than thinking like an American, we must think like a Christian. And that's hard to divide along political lines. That's all I'll say about that. I think we can imagine ourselves as probably two different people in this story. One is we could imagine ourselves as sinners who need God's forgiveness. The ones who say, I really don't have this. I need this. Or we could say, maybe we, are we the Pharisees sometimes who think that we don't need the help? Who prefer to spend our life saying who's in and who's out? Oh, let's not be that. Are we the ones who are so confident that, oh, I've, I've got it, Lord. You know, sort of, I, I needed your grace, Jesus, just for forgiveness. But now that I've got a new start, I'll take it from here. How many times do we believe that? That's no different than these Pharisees were saying, we're in, we're the people of God, and now we can obey on our own. And Jesus is saying, uh-uh. That wineskin had its day, but it's about to bust up now. Jesus wants us to come to this place of saying is to say, Lord, I still need you. I still need you, Jesus. It's not about me white-knuckling my obedience, pretending that I got this. It's about me daily saying, Jesus, you're the Savior. Come and save. Come and save me today. Come and save me today from my own thoughts and pride and not save me in my, the midst of my selfishness. Jesus, I never outgrow my need of you. May we always see that. I do think perhaps there's a third person in the story that we could see ourselves as, a third character that we could kind of begin to identify and relate to. And that's maybe the, the friends that dug through the roof tiles and lowered their friend in there. I, it's tricky when you talk about this, about leading someone else to Jesus and bringing someone to Jesus. What does that mean exactly? And it's, I can't spell that out for you. But I think there's got to be something in us that says, who's the person that's stuck, that's helpless, that doesn't see it, that's being thrown out, cast out, put away? Who's that person and how can I scrape through the tiles of the roof and bring them in to Jesus. Who's that person? If you see yourself as the Pharisee that doesn't really need much help, and I can take it from here, God, thanks for the forgiveness thing, but now you'll never be the one who scrapes through the tiles of the roof. But you know who scrapes through tiles of a roof? Desperate people. People who understand that there is no other hope. People who know unless Christ has mercy, oh, God. And when we live, I think when we live from that place and believe that we never outgrow our need of Him, it makes us more willing to say, well, uh, hey, I, I don't know if you're open to this, but would you come? And maybe digging through the tiles of a roof and lowering a person to Jesus, 
Maybe is as simple as saying, taking a step out for some of you and saying, well, the thorn's coming up, right? Palm Sunday in April. Maybe I'll bring some. Maybe it's that. Maybe that's the, the start. Maybe this other start of it, maybe the next thing is a meal. Or maybe there's something else. But here's Jesus sitting with Levi and Levi sitting with his other tax collectors. How will Jesus speak those words of forgiveness to those people? if we don't set the table for him? How will those people sit and eat and drink with the Savior whose arms are open, who's extending, announcing forgiveness? It's forgiveness. The Son of Man is here to forgive. How will they hear those words unless we set the table for the meal? There's a couple of ways we can think about that. Let's pray tonight. This is one of the rare nights where I'm actually done nine minutes early. So to pay you, to reward you for all the other nights when I've gone five minutes over, we'll begin our conclusion. Begin our conclusion. (laughs) Preachers always got to leave a wiggle room, you know. You can come up, Matthew. (laughs) It's just your night, bro. It's your night. We love you. We love you. Come on up. Jesus had the stern, his sternest words for people who were sure of themselves. His kindest words for people who were broken. If you're here tonight and you're saying, man, I don't belong in this church thing. I don't know about that. I'm just... If you knew what happened, and if this and that. Know that the Savior's words are the same today. Tonight. His words are, your sins are forgiven. I'm here. If you're here tonight, trying to add Jesus on like a patch to an old garment, please, lay it down tonight. Jesus won't be used as a slogan. Jesus won't be added to your self-determinism. Jesus is calling us to lay down old garments, used up wineskins, and say, help, fill me, clothe me. Like the scripture in Revelation 3, our New Testament reading, naked, wretched, poor, blind. Yep, sounds like me. That's what he wants us to finally come to see. May his offer of salvation never be an insult because we don't want to admit our need. May we always willingly, gladly, freely say, God, I'm trading in an old garment for a new one. Jesus, I'm trading in an old, tired program and method and and I need new ones. Jesus, forgive me for having begun in your, the grace of your forgiveness, trying to finish in the strength of my own self-righteousness. Spirit of God, keep us from the kind of exclusivism where we're concerned about who's in and who's out. Keep us from the kind of optimism that is convinced that we can do it. But always let us be the sinners that say, Lord, have mercy knowing that what we hear in response is, 
you have it. You have mercy. You have forgiveness. And Holy Spirit, over the next few days and few weeks and months this year, help us to know what it means to allow others to meet you. Whether it's scraping off the roof tiles or simply setting a table, throwing a party, leading a group, having a house party. Jesus, may we continue to announce your forgiveness, the message that you came to announce. Thank you that your new age, your age to come has, has begun because you came, Jesus. Thank you it wasn't because we were good enough. Thank you that it's come. The new covenant is here. Forgiveness is here. Thank you that all of us who were outsiders, outcasts in some ways, have been brought in, brought near. In Jesus' name, amen.